0: I'm Brian Walsh and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. This is the fifth episode in a special series produced in collaboration with the Omidyar Network called Beyond Tradeoffs, Investing Across the Returns Continuum.
1: We weren't the first, um, however, we have the largest commitment for mission-related investments.
0: That's Roy Swan, Director of Mission Investments for the Ford Foundation. He and Deputy Director Christine Looney spoke with Impact Alpha editor David Bank about how they are leveraging the Ford Foundation's endowment to create social good. Let's jump right into their conversation.
2: It's great to have you guys here. I'm. I want to jump straight in. What is out there beyond trade-offs? Give us the high level. I'll start here
1: at the Ford Foundation. Uh, we, we're looking to use more of the Ford Foundation's capital to advance social justice. And we also would like to uh, be effective at increasing the level of diversity in the uh, investment management industry. Those are two of our key objectives.
2: Great. I want to dig into to that and how you guys are making th- that happen. Let's just make sure that the listeners understand uh, who each of you are. um And I just want to situate both of you. I know uh, I've known and, and worked with with the Ford Foundation over time. And so I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. But but Roy, you're newer. So just want to tell us how you got to be uh, helping run the, the impact investments at Ford.
1: Yeah, thanks. I, I uh, joined the Ford Foundation in January last year. And before that, I had spent about ten years at Morgan Stanley. Most of that time I was in uh, a group called Global Sustainable Finance. That was, in essence, Morgan Stanley's impact investing area. Uh, and when I left, I was the co-head of that group. And during my time there, Morgan Stanley committed about thirteen billion dollars uh, of its own balance sheet into impact investing over the period from roughly
2: two thousand nine through uh, twenty seventeen. And so you recruited from Morgan Stanley to 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 Ford, and why would you uh, why would you jump?
1: You know, great
2: question. I. I really loved my job at Morgan Stanley,
1: and uh, you wouldn't have um, been able to convince me that I would leave, but a couple things about the Ford Foundation made it really appealing. First of all, simply the brand uh, of the Ford Foundation, what it stands for, its entire existence is based around advancing social justice. So that's a, that's a cause that's near and dear to my heart. Um, the other thing, uh, two other things, uh, the opportunity to be a part of this grand new beginning, the launch of this really important effort, a billion dollars uh, out of our foundation endowment committed to impact investing over a 10 year period. period—it it's, it's, That's such a, a, a monumental um, undertaking. The, the opportunity to be a part of that was great. And then finally, I thought, that um, with the Ford Foundation, there's a different voice that, um, that I could bring in. And, and uh, our team, I believe would have more convening power for more uh, different types of parties than if I was at Morgan Stanley. There's just a different uh, reaction people will have to uh, the Ford Foundation as a convening brand uh, compared with Morgan Stanley. So I think that I'm in a position to have a, a bit more
2: uh, voice. And, and Christine, um, maybe maybe one way to, to introduce yourself is just what's different now than, than a few years ago at Ford in, in this regard.
3: Yeah, well, it's great to be talking with you, David. Um, I mean, materially, I think, and a career highlight for me has been having the opportunity to kind of work with the foundation on developing this new MRI strategy and really being a um, Part of a team at this stage in the market where we can allocate um, this sizable kind of contribution of capital into the market, and and that the foundation, you know, more broadly, is just um, kind of taken what we've learned from fifty years of program-related investing and um, applied that to now an endowment strategy, and also complemented it with a grant-making strategy that's really engaging in field building and and thinking more thoughtfully about the capital markets in general. So yeah, it's it's a really um, exciting time um, to be here and Darren's leadership on all of this and our board's engagement has been fantastic.
2: So you've waded in, Christine, to the three letter acronyms that I knew would come up in this conversation. So let's just get them out of the way and and make sure that everybody understands what we're talking about. So there are both MRIs, as you called them, mission-related investments, and just just tell us what those are and, and, and the billion-dollar um, mandate that Roy called out as well. So just, just define that for us.
3: Sure, while they're both investment products that um, are trying to achieve financial returns and social outcomes, they're quite different when it comes to how they're defined from a tax basis. Um, the mission-related investments, which is the, the billion-dollar allocation and the new allocation um, is uh, are investments that really, at their core, advance a foundation's mission. They need to be treated as prudent investments. They're um, very similar to a, a commercial investment and need to meet all of the um, typical standards that an investor would need to meet. Um, program-related investments, alternatively, have a charitable standard that they need to meet, and their primary purpose needs to be to advance the foundation's programmatic goals. Um, They do not need to be made as prudent investments, which enables foundations to take different levels of risk when they use them.
2: Okay. So just to be clear, we've got two pots of, of capital here with different kind of attributes. It actually gives you guys some flexibility, I imagine, to make different kinds of investments and in, or, or put the right kind of capital to work, you know, depending on what the situation is. And that makes Ford a, sort of a pioneer because I don't think that many foundations so far have dedicated much on the Endowment side on what you guys are calling the MRI side, um, which is frankly where most of foundation assets sit, isn't that right?
1: That's correct. I think we, I think at last count, there may have been, uh, I think it was less than 20 foundations out of the thousands um, that have both mission related investments and program related investments. As uh, tools in their toolkit. So yeah, we're we're one of the few. We weren't the first. Um, however, we have the largest commitment for mission-related investments, and and I don't know about. I, I think Gates Foundation has the largest program-related investments allocation. But our goal is to take that one billion dollars, and and it, it may sound like a lot of money to some people, but it's really just a drop in the bucket when you think about all the costs um, that are generated. Uh, By some of the societal issues. So when I mentioned that whole concept of convening power, a part of what we want to do is influence more of the market, get more foundations, family offices and other investors to consider uh, what we're doing in this end of the impact investing spectrum uh, that mission related investments targets.
2: All right, well that's a very good jumping off point because it, to get those other players to to consider that, you're obviously got to demonstrate the viability of that approach to investing. So at some level, what are you trying to prove with the new mandate?
1: Well, we're we're trying to prove that it is possible to generate both financial returns that would be appropriate for endowment or other capital that falls under fiduciary standards and uh, financial and social returns. And the we've done a lot of work around that. We've looked at a lot of different sectors that might fit with the Ford Foundation's mission. And we found a number of sectors that we believe are both mature enough to accommodate large pools of capital and have some history of, uh, of success. So our goal is really to uh, demonstrate that There are investment opportunities available. They have returns on capital that, at least from what we've seen, would fit a reasonable risk-adjusted return on capital expectation uh, for many investors. And um, the more we are able to uh, put money to work and get our story out there, and that's both the successes and failures, because our, our, our hope is to help others avoid our failures and where we have successes uh, join in so that we can uplift
2: the field. So you mentioned risk adjusted. And and in the in the essay, you you also talk quite a lot about risk as, in fact, maybe the unappreciated lever uh, in this. And, And people sometimes think about, you know, above market or below market or market rate returns. But in fact, the other part of that equation is always the risk and risk adjusted. So um, tell us about how you think about risk. I think the most
1: important um, component uh, here for us is uh, we know what our risk appetite is for our mission related investments pool of capital. We also know what it is for our program related investments. And that's that's a really helpful first step. Um, The second thing is we have a pretty good appreciation for certain asset classes where there might be a gap between perceived risk and actual risk. And the affordable housing uh, category is a great example of that. That's a category where, talk about an opportunity to optimize social and financial returns. Housing is, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's the basic need, right? So, so much of life and opportunity revolves around sort of where you live and how you live. And the other thing about affordable housing in the U.S. is the supply-demand curve is such that there is demand that by far outstrips supply. So just from basic economics, that means that there's uh, some downside protection because in both strong markets and in weak markets, and that's, I should say, strong and weak economies, there is a need for affordable housing. And so during the global financial crisis, the affordable housing asset class performed extraordinarily well. In fact, vacancies went down, which makes sense when you think about it, because uh, as people's incomes decrease, uh, you you can't afford the same type of housing that you had before. So we look at that and we look at the the potential returns that can be generated. We looked at the relative stability of the asset class and we look at the possibilities where um, when affordable housing developers who are community oriented and socially minded can bring social services and products that can help the residents. And instead of you know, building self storage facilities for humans, you've got uh, developers who, who are focused on creating environments and quality housing that people are proud to call home and also enhancing uh, the opportunities, particularly for the younger people. So when you have developers that may add amenities such as after-school. Uh, education programs or preventive health care and so forth. We just see that as just an outstanding opportunity uh, to fulfill the Ford Foundation's mission through its endowment.
2: So you're saying there's a kind of counterintuitive reality here, which is that uh, the affordable part of the housing market actually is is, is it can be stable and 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 lower risk, and and what maybe people think as the hotter part of the market, the you know high end lux- luxury end, might be actually higher risk than people than people think. And at a risk-adjusted basis, maybe maybe the, 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 the signals point the other way than, than are generally perceived. Well, certainly
1: in the rental market, so we focus on multifamily affordable rental housing. Uh, affordable um, housing is much less volatile. I mean, there's a reason why the sort of luxury or market rate apartments target a higher return is because it is higher risk. Uh, but from our perspective, we believe that the return that's targeted by affordable housing uh, is is very attractive and may actually be a premium to what should be expected given the relatively low risk of the asset class.
2: So we've noted for folks like pension fund managers, for example, very long time horizons, they may like... Some, an asset that has characteristics that are very stable, as you said, very low, you know, lower risk, have a decent kind of steady yield. They may not be looking for, you know, spikes of valuation as much as just a good long-term steady asset. I can understand that in a pension fund context. Is that, is that, a, is that makes sense for an investor like Ford as well? Um, so, so
1: the Ford Foundation, we have uh, a primary focus here of providing grant capital to the market. And so the IRS requires that we spend 5% each year. And as a perpetual foundation, we also want to maintain our purchasing power. So if you think about just those uh, two inputs, we've got a long-term commitment to providing at least 5% in cash uh, in the form of grants. And so when you have long-term investment opportunities that provide relatively stable returns that we think can get you the replacement of the 5% plus inflation, it, it, it all works out. So yes, foundations are very similar to pension funds. In fact, one could say that with respect to the beneficiaries, you know, a, pe- a, a foundation's beneficiary is perpetual. It's, it's sort of citizens of society. And for pension funds, it's each beneficiary might be a multi-generational obligation as you think about right retirees and, and their families.
2: So let's just be clear now, you've got this billion dollar mandate. I think it's over 10 years, which by my simple math is a is a hundred million a year or so that you're putting to work. And where are you at in that process?
3: Yeah, we've committed a 125 million of the billion. And um We're on track with where we wanted to be and in that progress Um, and we've committed across the four different kind of verticals that we've selected so includes um, affordable housing, which we've talked about um, financial inclusion, um, a focus on quality jobs and diverse managers.
2: And are you able to find, I mean, just just taking it back to this risk-adjusted, the the affordable example, affordable housing example is instructive. Are you able to find those kinds or similar kinds of mispriced risk or, you know, special knowledge that you might have? I mean, is that playing out across those four areas?
3: Absolutely. I mean, some are earlier in um, their development, but I think, I mean, we could probably allocate the full billion to the affordable housing strategy if we wanted to. And there is a significant amount of product available through which we could invest in right now.
2: And is that not the case in the other case? Like how do you how do you invest in in quality jobs?
3: So in quality jobs, it is an earlier strategy, and we want to do some more work there. We've made one commitment, um, which is in the process of closing, so I can't disclose it yet.
2: Oh, come on.
3: It's a, but it's a, manager, it's a manager that's working with with companies to really improve the quality of their labor force, but also have um, link those to bottom line outcomes. So it's saying if if I offer paid sick leave to my employees, I'm going to deal with less turnover. If I provide you know on the job training, I'm going to have a more dedicated workforce with better skills. And so it's, I think for us, it's this thesis, how can we change the view of labor as an expense to labor as an asset? And we're working with MIT, the Good Jobs Institute, and others to really think of whether there's potential to scale this in the market.
2: That's one of my favorite topics, labor as an asset versus labor as an expense. That may be something that is over the rainbow in the beyond trade-offs land is, um, because that changes a lot of calculations, I imagine.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, the Good Jobs Institute uh, has done some great work. Um, it's, it's co-founded by Zainab Tun. She's an operations design uh, uh, and research expert there at MIT Sloan. And, you know, the, the thesis really is for companies to be most productive and most profitable, you obviously need superior operational uh, design. But in order to execute on such a design, you need employees who are engaged in a superior way. And that means superior human capital investment. And so there are some basic uh, number of case studies she puts forth in her book, The Good the good Job Strategy. But this really is that the focus is on a commercial uh, strategy where it's a triple win opportunity. Companies win, human capital wins, and investors win.
2: In fact, it's kind of similar to what you were saying, Roy, about the Affordable housing example, which is investments in social services, whether it's after school or or childcare or health services, uh, maybe healthy food in the communities, actually pays off in better investment quality. It sounds like this, you're saying the same thing on the on the job side at some level that those things that are sometimes seen as overhead burdens, in fact, are maybe credit enhancements or even upside opportunities.
1: Yeah, no, she, uh, uh, Professor Tun has done case studies on companies that pay their employees more within this is within the same industry peer uh, sector pay their their employees more but are more productive and more profitable and so how do you how do you accomplish that and that's exactly where we want to go with this
2: there's another angle where this may play out and you you mentioned it early on which is in- encouraging more diversity in the managers themselves of the investment funds is that a, that's a core part of the investment thesis it sounds like
1: yes it is and and, and so one of our I call it a favorite statistic, but that sounds a little bit odd because uh, They're all your
2: favorites? It's a Like your
1: children? Well, because it's such a sad reality. So there was a study completed by the U.S. Government Accountability Office that indicated that 1% of the 70 trillion in assets under management in the U.S. is managed by firms owned by women or uh, ethnic minor- minorities. That's 1%. And those those groups make up roughly 70% of the population. What was surprising to me is I didn't realize that Congresswoman Maxine Waters had ordered that study. And the interesting thing is uh, she just took the gavel of the um, House Committee on Financial Services. So I think people might start paying a bit more attention to this. But there's lots of opportunities, we believe, for investors to both do well and do good Um, by thinking a little bit more about women and uh, minority-owned firms or firms that have significant uh, representation of women and minorities at the uh, senior levels.
3: Just like in the housing example where we think the market's getting it wrong, I mean, we we see an incredible opportunity not only to align capital with our values and reduce some of the unequal allocation of capital, but... There's a huge business opportunity here. Uh, we really believe that more diversity is good for business. And you know despite research report after research report on the industry that demonstrates that diverse managers perform at or above um, more homogeneous teams, the capital um, markets are not you know changing the way they allocate capital. So I think this is one area where we see there's much more perceived risk than we believe exists it's a place where we can really
2: lean in. Well, this is interesting because the thing that the very thing that is an obstacle, as you say, for the market adoption becomes at some level a competitive advantage for folks like yourself who 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 see that opportunity earlier than others. So, you know, something the market doesn't know. That's kind of the definition of an of an edge in the marketplace. Um, you can get in with managers or into opportunities that others others might stay away from and therefore you get the the upside the upside return as well as the risk mitigation.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean I think, you know, listen, we have a diverse team. We think that brings a lot of value. We have different connections and networks. And we want to kind of support teams that kind of can bring the same kind of thesis to their their own investment strategies because we think they in turn will will see things that the traditional market is overlooking.
1: And there are some there are some sort of economic slash financial advantages, I think you were kind of hinting at, David. And one is, you know, when when you target an underserved market from an investment perspective, there are going to be valuation advantages, right? Because these folks aren't going to be swimming in offers uh, from the usual suspects in Silicon Valley. So there's benefits there. There are also new ideas new products that folks in less diverse, uh, context haven't thought of. So we, we do believe that there is some, some real value. And then finally, you know, the, the, just to mean think about the, the country, you know, the more people you bring in, and this is such basic stuff, that the more people that are in productively engaged in the economy, the better off all of us are. There's more job creation for everyone. A job is fungible. And so the more jobs and high quality jobs, uh, the better. So we, we hope, I mean, part of the battle here is just people call it cognitive bias. There can be an automatic um, negative reaction to just simply the word diversity. So hopefully with more examples of stories, uh, both successes and failures, because you can learn from the failures and, and, and march your way to success. Uh, this is also a part of what we hope will be the Ford Foundation study when it's written uh, on the power of our impact investing program.
2: Sort of last question, which is, I, I, I'm imagining you guys with your team there and that some across some cubicle divider is the traditional investment team. And, you know, you've gotten your billion dollar carve up, but there's still quite a lot on the other side of that, that cubicle divider. So is there some kind of like competition going on and, and you're and you're and you're outperforming them and and then more people are trying to like join your team because you're where the action is? I would I would say we have a really healthy collaboration. Um, uh, Oh, come on. You got to be competitive. No. There's a lot of. uh,
3: You're right on the cubicles, though.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So so, you know, um, our our chief investment officer uh, was a part of the internal uh, staff that oversaw the study uh, that made the decision on uh, creating this Mission-related investment carve-outs. He, 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 uh, so there's there's w- within the Ford Foundation, there's a lot of productive collaboration, and
2: uh, that's just a part of it. But we, but yes, we are a we're a completely separate uh, group. Well, just to in all seriousness, I guess the question is: to what extent is what you're learning applicable? Firstly, to other foundations, as we've discussed, and then more broadly to the to the broader financial markets and to other investors that may not be foundations. Um, are you trying to create a a model of a new, of a new kind of, of investment approach? I'll
1: I'll start and then maybe Christina. So I will say on that, and we have, we have been really happy that we've gotten a lot of phone calls, uh, asking us, you know, how did, how did you all get it, get, get mission related investments or impact investing approved? And how are you executing? So, that's a big part of our job is just uh, describing the process, uh, what we're finding in the market and, and any way we can be helpful. So that's that's a that's a great opportunity
2: for us. Including podcasts like this. Absolutely.
3: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that's true. I think, listen, over the month and a year and a half that we were getting this strategy approved, we... We took advantage of the, the foundations that kind of came before us, and I think we want to continue to you know almost pay it forward and set out with two goals when it really came to the social performance of this portfolio. One was to allocate more capital to um, Ford's mission and um, reduce inequality. And secondly, to kind of be a really transparent investor and as a way to help more of the market. Um, learn along the way and allocate more capital um, to socially and environmentally responsible like investment strategies so um we're we're just getting started and um you know hope to continue to kind of put put information as we learn along the way out into the market
2: terrific well as you as you say many people are watching you as including impact alpha and we look forward to touching base and and, and getting the the next update thank you very much for joining us
0: Thank, Thank you, David. David. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns and Investments special series, Beyond Tradeoffs. Find out more at impactalpha.com and on Twitter, at impactalpha. We'll also continue the conversation on the Beyond Tradeoffs channel on Impact Alpha's subscribers-only Slack channel. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha in collaboration with the MIDIAR Network. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh head of impact for the fintech company, LiquidNet. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in some sense of the word next time.